Uh, I invite you to turn uh, in your Bibles to Acts chapter 11 this morning. Acts chapter 11. And uh, we're going to continue our series on the church at Antioch. This is a three-part series uh, done in conjunction with our three weeks of strategic planning as a church. I've really enjoyed uh, the opportunity to get into this text of Scripture. I've never had the privilege of uh, preaching on the church at Antioch. I can't say that uh, I, I, I've studied this text in close detail before either, uh, but I've just been really, uh, really encouraged by the Lord in what he can do uh, with the church for the glory of his own name. The church at Antioch was a church chosen by God to make a huge difference in this world. Last week, we considered the early stages of this church's existence and some essential characteristics or some uh, characteristics that are worth emulating. There were three that we looked at. Remember last week, uh, first, we said that this church in the city in Antioch in Syria was a church that was energized by the faithfulness of common believers. If you remember at the beginning of this text, there were men that came from Cyprus and Cyrene. That's all we know about them. We don't know their name. We won't know their name up till glory. But these faithful, no-named individuals come from Cyprus and Cyrene and bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to this church. And, and a great many people come to know the Lord. So the church that changes the world is energized by the faithfulness of common believers. Uh, but then we also saw that uh, this church was blessed by the presence and power of God. That's where we look just for a, a very brief moment, that phrase. We could have spent more time looking Old and New Testament for the phrase, the hand of God, the hand of the Lord. The hand of the Lord was with them. And many people come, came to know Jesus Christ. So the church that changes the world is absolutely de dependent on the blessing and the presence of God. And uh, we also saw the third characteristic, and that is a church that changes the world is led by the ministry of godly leaders, but you could actually apply that to godly members as well. In this text, we saw that there was a man by the name of Barnabas who comes down to the church, at, actually comes up to the church at Antioch, and he begins to, uh, to observe what's going on. He sees grace, and so he stays with them. He begins to teach them, and the text describes Barnabas in a, a very interesting way. It says he was a good man. He's a good man. Full of the spirit and of faith. That's what we looked at last week. Godly leaders are required for a church that changes the world. God did something so special in this church that when this leading apostle visited, the text says he saw grace. He saw the gospel penetrating between the inner walls of the city breaking that up so that Jew and Gentile are now worshiping together in one location in homes for the glory of God. And I, I hope and pray that that grace would be a mark of this church as well. People from various backgrounds coming together because of the common tie of Jesus Christ. Although uh, Acts 11, 19 through 30 is a short account, <clears throat> Luke's biographical sketch here of the church at Antioch is helpful for us today. We can learn a lot from biographies. Um, 
Ever since I finished my dissertation, I've had it as a goal. I don't know if I've always been successful, but to begin reading more biographies. Um, while in dissertation, I read nothing that I wanted to read. It was all technical stuff no one in the world would want to read. Uh, but when it was done, I thought, I'm going to read some biographies. And I, I love biographies. It doesn't even necessarily have to be about a Christian. I just love to learn from people in the past. As a matter of fact, not too long ago, our family went on a trip. And uh, I got, someone gave me um, a biography of John Adams. Okay, and it's, a, it's in book form. It's two volumes, massive. Well, I got it on CD. Okay, and so I was listening to the biography of John Adams until my family rebelled. Uh, I think my wife and my children came together and they said, either we're going to hitchhike the rest of the way or we're going to trick you into going into the Welcome Center area and then, you're, you're not Welcome Center, the Welcome area, and uh, then we'll leave without you. Uh, so, you know, I love biographies. Some of my favorite biographies I've had a chance to read recently, F.F. F. Bruce, A Life Written by Tim Grass, that really challenged and stirred me to know the word better. I love the two-volume biography of George Whitfield by Arnold Dollimore. I haven't had a chance to read the whole way through, but what I've read is just so delightful. For years now, I've loved the biography, Lords of the Earth, the story of Stan Dale, whose faithful ministry, his faithful sacrifice, he gave his life so that the Yali Indians in Irian Jaya could come to know Jesus Christ. It's just a, mo a moving, gripping story of faithfulness in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Probably my, my, my favorite biography I've read recently or been reading through recently is Bless God and Take Courage, the, the Judson History and Legacy by Rosalie Hunt. This is a tremendous biography of the life of Anne and Adoniram Judson. Let me just read you a small portion of their life just to see how we can learn from people in history. And God can use it greatly. It says in this biography, there was no time to find someone else. The ship was sailing. Not many days out to sea, Anne became gravely ill and started early labor. Her only assistant was Adoniram frantic with anxiety as he struggled to help in a situation completely outside of his skills. Anne was deathly ill, and their son was stillborn. Their firstborn, who never drew a breath, was buried in the Bay of Bengal. And the grief-stricken young couple had only each other for comfort. Anne was so ill that Adoniram agonized over losing his wife as well. To add to their distress, the old vessel would not stay on course, and they were threatened with wrecking on a cannibal shore as they perilously drifted between the little and greater Andaman Islands. The stroke of seeming misfortune may have saved both ship and Anne. They were becalmed in a spot where the waters were as still as a mill pond, and Anne was finally able to rest. Then the ship caught favorable winds, and their gold Burma grew close. Anne and Adoniram were filled with conflicting emotions. They'd been striving toward this goal for years. Now they wondered if their dream was actually a nightmare. It was Tuesday, July 13th, 1813, when the shores of Rangoon, Burma, appeared on the horizon. What could possibly have been further from the beautiful golden shore of the Judson's early dreams than the straggling, squalid shoreline assailing their eyes? It was more like a cruel parody of a dream for two soul-weary wanderers who gazed with both dread and anticipation at what lay before them. Their first views of Calcutta had been exciting, colorful. By stark contrast, Rangoon was a wretched-looking place. The city had been flooded by heavy rains, 
And as Adoniram stood by the rail and strained for his first view of shore, the coastline was shrouded in fog. Anne was still too weak to stand, and Adoniram could only describe for her the depressing sights that slowly emerged through the drifting mist. But they had arrived with a determination that was literally a mission for life. And Anne said, quote, It was in our hearts to live and die with the Burmans, and we in this place determined to live. Read the sacrifice of missionaries, pioneer, you know, these biography moments. It just stirs us. It stirs us to rise above our mediocrity. It challenges us, doesn't it? You read these biographical notes to, uh, to rise above the pressure to be passive and to be nominal as a follower of Jesus Christ. This morning is my heart and my desire that Luke's short autobiographical biographical sketch of the church at Antioch will stir us to rise above mediocrity and to imagine what we might be able to be corporately as a body for the glory of Jesus Christ. This week we're going to look at two more characteristics found in verses 25 through 30. But to get the whole biographical sketch for you, let's start reading in verse 19. It says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord." So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, every one according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that as we look at the end of this text today, that you would give me clarity and strength and energy as I proclaim your word. Would you enable me to believe the sufficiency of your word to meet our needs and to challenge us and push us to be more like Christ? Lord, would you be with everyone here today who's listening to this word proclaimed? I pray that it would be uh, impactful. I pray that the Holy Spirit would use it like a sharp scalpel to convict and to encourage and to strengthen your body here at Colonial Baptist Church. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. 
Again, there are just two characteristics I want to open up to you and I want you to see in verses 25 through 30. Uh, I guess this first one would be characteristic number four, if you're taking notes from last week. Uh, a church that changes the world pays close attention to Scripture together. church that changes the world pays close attention to Scripture together. And the, the verses, I'll, I'll draw that from are verses 25 and 26. These verses, Luke uh, emphasizes this exemplary quality of the church. They loved the scriptures. They spent time in the text together. It all starts with Barnabas traveling to Tarsus to find Saul. It appears it was not a very easy task for him, although it was not that far geographically. The way it's written in the original makes you, makes you think that it uh, took Barnabas some time to find him, to discover where he was in Tarsus. But he goes, he finds him, and then he convinces Saul, later named Paul, to return with him to Antioch. Before we keep going here, one might wonder why Barnabas would go and get Saul. Was this beyond him? Did he need help? Uh, why would he go and get Saul? And I want to answer that question by just looking very briefly at two texts in the book of Acts with you. So go back to Acts chapter 9 for a moment. So why would Barnabas want Saul to join him? You might be able to guess, but look with me in Acts 9 and verse 26. This is right after Barnabas, or right after Paul is converted. He ministers for a while, and then he has to leave his city. Look at verse 26. It says, and when he had come to Jerusalem, that's Saul, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them two things. So pay attention to the text here. Number one, how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him. And two, and how. So you see the word how there twice. He, he testifies about two things regarding Saul. How he'd seen the Lord uh, who spoke to him. And then secondly, how at Damascus Saul had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Okay, so the disciples, they don't trust Saul of Tarsus because he was formerly a persecutor of the church. They won't accept him, but Barnabas gives him a reference. Okay, he says two things. He, he saw a vision of Jesus and he's been preaching boldly. Take special note of that second one. He's a bold preacher of Jesus. Now go to Acts 14 for a moment. Acts 14, just beyond our text in Acts 11. Acts 14, I want to read verses 11 and 12 with you. So why did Barnabas seek out Saul of Tarsus? What was he, what was he doing? How, how might Saul help him? Uh, Acts 14, verse 11. It says, and when the crowd saw that what Paul had done, stop, what he had done was God enabled him to perform a miracle in Lystra. He had healed a crippled individual. Okay, so when they saw what, what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, name of a god. And Paul, Hermes, another god. Why was Paul called Hermes? Because he was, the text says, the chief speaker. Language there, chief speaker, means Paul was the leading speaker, which probably indicates that he was a more gifted communicator than Barnabas was. So Saul turned Paul 
was a bold preacher and a leading speaker. So selfless Barnabas gets him to come and minister to the church at Antioch. Okay, you can go back to Acts chapter 11. Okay, verse 26 now. So he goes and gets this chief speaker, this bold preacher, to teach the people in Antioch. And once they come back to the city, verse 26 tells us what happens. And it does so by, by drawing our attention to their activity with two verbs. It says that they met and they taught. They met and they taught. They met with the church. They taught a great many people. Look in verse 26. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year. They met with the church, taught great many people. There's some debate here about whether their teaching was broader than their church, whether it involved you know, unbelievers as well. I think it's better to see the church being a great many people. Okay, you look in verse 26 there, that phrase, a great many people, you go up above it to verse 24, end of that verse, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Same exact phrase. And so I think verse 26 is doing, I think that Luke is telling us the activity of Barnabas and Paul. They, they turn their attention to, to meeting, and the sort of meeting they engaged in was teaching the church, uh, the text of Scripture. Well, we can be fairly certain that this church followed the model of church gatherings described in Acts 2. Pastor Paul read it for us. They continued in four things, right, in the apostles' teaching and fellowship and breaking of bread and prayers. As we can be fairly certain this church did that, we can be absolutely certain that there was one thing they committed themselves to for over a year when they got together, and that was teaching. Teaching. James Montgomery Boyce describes the importance of, of teaching in this text. He says, this was a new church with very little knowledge of the Word of God. What did a church like this need if it was not going to go off in one crazy direction after the other? Obviously, Boyce says, it needed sound teaching. Might I add to what Boyce is saying and say, not only do new believers and new churches need sound teaching and to give themselves to sound teaching, so do uh, mature believers and churches need a commitment to sound teaching from the Scripture. Now at the end of verse 26, there's an interesting comment that's added. Look at the end of verse 26. It says, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christian, Christians. There are a few reasons why I think that's interesting. First is its grammar. Okay, it, its grammar seems to, to point us in a direction that this was not a self-designation. Okay. This church at Antioch didn't get together in their strategic plan and say, let's come up with a new name for ourselves. I got it. What if we call ourselves Christians, ones of Christ? This is not a self-designation. The way it's written makes you think leads you to believe that this is what the people of Antioch started referring them, uh, to them as. This is, this is what outsiders began calling them. They were Christ ones. Okay, now, the title Christian is interesting to me as well. 
One author I read this week who wrote a, a long article on this, did a lot of research in first century times, demonstrated a connection in form between the word Christian to other groups during the first century. One of them is reflected in our Bibles, and you can see it even in English. You ever heard of the group the Herodians? Christians, Herodians. Another group that uh, this man wrote on was the uh, Augustians, okay, the followers of Caesar Augustus. This article, he demonstrated that those who followed these rulers, Herod and uh, Caesar Augustus, showed strong loyalties, attending their public performances, and manifesting wild enthusiasm for their leaders. So when those at Antioch called the believers Christians, it is a strong word describing these believers' deep devotion to Christ and his word. Okay? And so their loyalty to Christ becomes their very identity. No longer Jew-Gentile, none of that stuff, background doesn't matter. You are Christians. You are followers of Jesus Christ. I remember hearing the story of the old preacher, Harry Ironside. I know some of you read him from time to time. Uh, he would tell the story of traveling to China and speaking. And when he first went to China and speak, he was there for a few times, and he, people kept referring to him as the Yasu Yan. Yasu Yan. And he had no idea what that meant. Okay, but later on, he, he, he realized that someone told him that the word Yasu in, uh, in uh, Cantonese was the word for Jesus, and Yan was man. So what they were referring to him as was the Jesus man. But that, you know, that's a great title. Jesus man. And this is great for the church of Antioch as well. I don't care if the outsiders thought of it as a way to debase them. For their identity to be wrapped around the Messiah, Jesus Christ, was a significant thing for them. So the title is interesting. But finally, one other little point I want to point out to you about this phrase, this end of verse 26, is its location in this text. I think that's interesting too. This phrase, and in Antioch the disciples were first called Christian, appears at the end of verse 26. There are two possible ways to understand why Luke put it at this spot. It may be as a summary statement of everything before. The, the people in Antioch, they just start looking around, they see these, these believers who are, you know, they're faithful, the, God's hands on them, and all this stuff, and they just refer to them as followers of Christ, Christ ones. Or I think it's better to see that this text is connected very specifically to 26a. Okay, you say, well, that's pretty technical. It's actually not. If you have your Bible open, you just look at verse 26a. What does it say there at the beginning of the verse? It talks about the way they were devoting themselves to teaching. They were gathering together for a whole year, and Saul kept teaching. And I think it's because of that specifically that the people in Antioch say, let's call them Christ ones. Let's call them Christ ones. The stronger case regarding its location then is that their close attention to uh, the text together caused outsiders to identify them as Christ followers. To this day, I, I think we should expect people in our culture 
to wonder why we as followers of Christ give so much attention to corporate Bible study. So an outsider, they say, okay, how many Bible studies are you like doing now? Can't you get enough of that? You just go in a room, you get together in a home or in a different room and house or at church, and you just, someone just like teaches you the Bible? Oh, you're one of those Jesus people. Mark of the early church is that they gathered regularly, Acts 2 says, maybe daily to hear the word taught. I've actually heard some believers complain sometimes about having so many Bible study options. The local church. There's just a part of me that just really did that. I don't like that. As a teacher at Northland Baptist Bible College, there were two different types of students that would come and, and sit under the teaching there. There were some who were looking for any way to take the fewest amount of Bible classes as they could. Is any other elective, you know, bowling, something, you know? I could do, honestly, at a Bible college. I'm thinking, why are you here? But there were other students who came. And they would line up their schedules. Man, I could take Romans. Man, I love Romans. I'll, I'll learn more about Romans. I'll just get chapter 2, leading to chapter 3. Remember conversations with young collegians, and they just wanted more Bible. How can I, can I take more classes? As a matter of fact, that's one of the reasons I came to Colonial Baptist Church, people. Over the years, I had the privilege of teaching many of your young people. Now, my, our young people from Colonial Baptist Church who went to Northland Baptist Bible College. And when I was talking with those collegians, what I detected is that they loved the text of Scripture. And I pray that this would be true, not just of 500 of us or 600, all of us. All of us, that we would love the text of Scripture. Who among us will cry out with the psalmist, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I've stored up your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. That same psalm, the psalmist says, Open my eyes to behold wondrous things out of your law. Psalmist declares in Psalm 19, verse 10, More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and dripping from the honeycomb. Does that describe you and our church? Do you love the text of Scripture? If you don't, might I encourage you to learn from a biography. Learn from the biography of the church at Antioch for a whole year. For a whole year. Paul taught them the text. This is a mark of a church that changes the world. Remaining uh, two minutes that I have left, let's look at number five. A church that changes the world, verses 27 through 30, also supports God's work in other locations. Verses 27 through 30 appear very quickly. We can go through them. It comes in two parts, in my opinion. First, there is a problem. Verse 27, now in those days prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit 
that there would be a great famine over all the world. That's the problem. A prophet named Agabus predicts a serious problem, not only for the world, but for the church. It was going to impact all people. He forecasts a famine that will devastate the world. In our modern world today, famines, of course, don't impact much of us the way it did people in the first century. The first century, when famines came, people went hungry. Some died of starvation. This is a significant, significant problem. And this was no little famine. It says it was a great famine over all of the world. And that phrase, over all of the world, is a bit interesting. It's an unusual expression, which either means over the entire inhabited world, or in some cases it means the entire Roman Empire, which was just about as broad as the inhabited world anyway. And so the point I think Luke is making when he describes this problem is that this famine was exhaustive. Every town and village in the Roman Empire or the inhabited world was affected. And that leads to a response in verses 29 and 30. Look at verse 29. So, that's the response. So, the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Saul. The response is remarkable. And I'll just point out a few things about it. First, it was sacrificial. You say, well, where do you see that in the text? I just say, you know, how was the famine just described in the verse before? How much of the world was impacted? The entire world. I love to read the commentators here because many of them say, well, Antioch must not have been affected by the famine. And so the people gave, uh, you know, okay. Now, they were affected in some way because this is over the world. And so the picture I, I think that Luke is portraying here that he would have us understand is that this is a church that themselves are impacted or will be impacted greatly by famine, but they sacrifice and they give to help the poor church in Jerusalem. Their gift was sacrificial. Uh, I think it's also uh, awesome to see that their response was unified and comprehensive. Verse 29, it says, every one of the disciples, okay, every one of them, according to their financial ability, gave relief to the church in Jerusalem. It's unified and comprehensive. This means the whole church gave. They were united in this act of benevolence. It was sacrificial, and it was a united act of community that supported what God was doing in other locations around the world. But there's one other thing I'll point out about this. This is just the first act of sacrifice and care that the church of Antioch will demonstrate and will prove that their interests lie beyond themselves, beyond their own church, their own region, to other areas. Next week, we will finish our series by looking at Acts chapter 13. In the first few verses of that chapter, we will learn that this church is willing not just to give of their financial resources to other locations, they're willing to give their leaders to other churches, to, to other areas, to establish and plant churches. Here in our text in chapter 11, they send financial help to the elders in Jerusalem. So a church that changes the world 
supports God's work around the world. I think it'd be easy for us as a church to pour all of our resources, our finances, and our people into needs that we have in our own assembly, in our own area or location. But a church that changes the world looks beyond itself to other churches who have great financial need and to other locations where the gospel is not heard. My prayer is that this biographical sketch will stir us this morning to love the text of Scripture together and to be generous, every one of us, for the glory of God. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the church at Antioch. I thank you for this text. Or I know sometimes humanly speaking, reading a biography can stir us. How much more so, Father, a biographical sketch that is inspired by the Spirit of God. Thank you for every word of this story, this true narrative. And I pray, Father, that as our individual believers and as our church examines itself, that we would be willing and ready to learn. I pray, dear Father, that you would allow us to be more like the church at Antioch with your good hand upon us. Would you be with us, for us, so as we consider, even in this next hour, we consider what we might do for your glory in the next five years. I pray that uh, it would be everything you want for us. We thank you for this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.